Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. All right, well, we are in Genesis 46. If you would turn there, why don't we pray, and then let's read the text together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity once again to to gather around it, to read it together, to ponder, to discuss, to, to think on what you would have us learn from your word. So we pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds as we read, that as we consider Jacob and Joseph and your faithfulness to this family so early in the time of promise, so it would lead us to reflect on your faithfulness and your kindness to us and to our families. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elan, and Jalil, these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, 
Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. When Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. All right. We have another genealogy. What do you notice about this genealogy? We've had several as we worked our way through Genesis. What makes this one stand out? Definitely different than the description we got in the last one. Um, but it goes more into detail further along through the genealogy than the last one. It talks about his sons and daughters, sons of his daughters, versus just his sons. Uh, was it Abraham that we talked about last? If I have to flip back, is I think we get Jacob versus Esau along the way. Of course, we had a little mention of Judah in chapter 38, but the big contrast is more uh, with earlier. If we look at chapter 36, chapter 36 is Esau's descendants. That's the last lengthy genealogy we had. And right before that, in chapter, the end of chapter 35, we get Jacob's genealogy. So this is seven sons. Well, where did the twelve five come from? The other, the daughters. So that's where they make up the other five. Or... Here in chapter forty-six, all all twelve sons are mentioned, but they're broken out according to which wife they're descended from, and so it, okay. it works in a few sections. That's one of our differences: is instead of just the father begat these children, we have the father begat these children by this wife, okay. and then we get at least two generations listed, right? By this wife, he begat these sons who had these sons. And then we get a, a figure at the end for the total. And then we move to the next wife. And so that differs, for instance, from the, well, actually, we have something similar at the end of chapter 35. We go by each wife, but it's just one generation. We don't get the son's sons and whatnot. Of course, they hadn't been born yet. Is there a relevance to why we would get 
the, the, the genealogy of more generations? Was it just better, better record keeping or is there a point to it? What do you think the point might be? They, his genealogy went on to do more things yeah. throughout the Bible. Just you know, to trace back where these people came from, who they were. Yeah. Part of what Genesis has been doing along the way, if you think about Lot uh, and others who've been mentioned, Esau, Ishmael, is it's helping Israel understand their relationship to their neighbors and the surrounding nations, right? Edom's on our border. Where did Edom come from? How do we relate to them? Well, Edom's descended from Esau, right? Ammon and Moab, if we start moving north from Edom, they're across the Jordan. They're on our border. How do we relate to them? Where did they come from? Well, they're descended from Lot, who is Abram's nephew. How are we related to them? Yeah, pretty much. but that's all. How do we as a whole relate to foreign nations on our border? But now as we get the, the breakdown of the, of the brothers and how they're grouped and who their sons are, we're starting to get a sense of how do we relate internally, right? How do the descendants of Judah relate to the descendants of Benjamin and to Levi and to Simeon as they're descended from different wives, right? And so some are close neighbors, some are far neighbors, but their, their proximity geographically may or may not be the same as their relationship uh, in blood. And we know from, from tracing through this history, right, that, that Rachel and Leah didn't get along very well. Sometimes that means their sons don't get along very well. And we'll notice that if we continue into numbers and we look at how Israel camped around the tabernacle, the tabernacle's in the center, and the sons of the concubines are sprinkled in their midst, but the sons of Rachel directly and the sons of Leah directly are placed on opposite sides of the camp as though to signal, look, we know they don't get along. Let's, let's keep them apart. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we know that uh, if we're going to take a road trip, right? There are certain siblings that you don't let them sit next to each other in the car. Well, it's like that within the family of Israel. So that's part of it is we're getting that grouping, but it's extended at least a second generation, because we're beginning to finally see the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham. Right? Abraham was promised that, that he'd be made into a great nation. The kings of peoples would come from him. But he's got Isaac. And we find out along the way that he has several other sons, not just Ishmael. Because he takes a concubine, Keturah, and she bears him several sons, but he sends them all away because the promise comes through Isaac. Well, okay, that means Isaac's going to have a whole lot of kids, right? Isaac has Jacob, Esau, and that's it. And Esau is sent away, and the promise comes through Jacob. And along the way, we've seen that Ishmael is extremely fruitful, and there are 12 princes descended from Ishmael, and Esau is very fruitful and goes and conquers a territory and kind of inter, intermingles with the people who are already there, the people of Seir. And he becomes a great, powerful nation that, that dominates a geographical area where they are almost impregnable. 
because they're on a high plateau. They've got narrow canyons. If you remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and you remember the buildings carved into the rock and some of the narrow canyon approaches, well, that was filmed in Petra, which is in the territory belonging to Edom. So up to this point, we've had this running contrast between we have a, a promise given to Abraham that we're told to expect descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, right? Try scooping up a handful of sand and taking a magnifying glass. Don't do it in the sun, right? And try to count all those grains of sand. And that's what it's supposed to be like to count Abram's descendants. But we've got Isaac. And then we've got Jacob. And now finally with Jacob, we've got 12 sons. But that's just one generation. But now, as they're about to enter Egypt, right? And this could mean great blessing. Abram went down to Egypt and came out incredibly enriched. It could mean grave threat. Because Abram went down into Egypt, Isaac went down into Egypt, and their wives were taken. But as we're about to go down, there are a couple things that happen. One is we get this genealogy, and we've gone from... 12 people to 70 people, plus a whole bunch of mentions that we aren't even counting that went down with them. So we're beginning to see that promise of a multiplication of descendants come to fruition as we're on the cusp of a move that could be blessing or could be threat. So I think that's a big part of, of why we have both the more detail, we include the daughters, and it goes that second generation. He probably had more daughters than is listed. Mm. So if he did, why not name all of them and their sons? Just Yeah, don't know. That many sons, I mean, undoubtedly he had more than, I mean, he didn't list, but I think four daughters in, in the whole realm, which, I mean, I guess it's possible, but... Yeah, well, even that first generation, right? Surely Dinah was not his only daughter. Right. With, with 12 sons. Surely Dinah's not the only daughter, but she's the only one mentioned. So, so it's, it's selective in who is mentioned. And the reasons for the selection, we, we don't know. We have this genealogy that, that shows us that God is beginning to multiply the, the descendants in the line of promise. What else do we have? as an assurance from God as they're about to depart for Egypt. It's actually before the genealogy. Yes, sir. When God um, appeared to, to Jacob or, uh, or Israel, assured him that he was going with him as they went into Egypt and he would come back out again. Yes. Yeah, verses 2 through 4 at the beginning of the chapter Jacob offers sacrifices and the Lord appears to him and offers him assurance. We're so far removed from this cultural context that, that I think we don't immediately recognize how important this assurance is because we are it's so deeply embedded in our ideas of what a God is, is that a God has universal control and is omnipresent. You can't get away from God's presence. 
But that was not a universal idea in the ancient world. And as much as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob should have known better, and David and the later prophets, deeply embedded in the culture that they're a part of, was the idea that different nations had different gods. And so each nation's God had a certain territorial extent that they had control over and in which they operated. That was the, the sphere of their dominion. And so if you moved from one place to another, you were moving outside that God's control. You see it with Naaman the Syrian when he comes to the prophet in Israel and he's healed of his leprosy and he asks for permission to take two mule loads of dirt back with him. And the reason is his understanding. And it's interesting how the prophet doesn't try and correct his understanding. He just gives him permission. But his understanding of how the world works and how gods operate is that he needs earth from Israel on which to offer sacrifices to Israel's God and to worship him. And so he's got to take a piece of the land back with him. And so as Jacob is about to leave the land where he has been under the Lord's care, the Lord assures him again that he will go with him. that He will be with him in Israel, that he's not leaving. He's not moving out from under the Lord's care to a place where he's under the threat of Egyptian deity. The Lord has done this for him before, hasn't he? If you all remember when as a young man, he has to flee and he goes to be with Laban and his family. The Lord offered him a very similar assurance and promise. It's going to be several chapters back in chapter 28, right? His mother sends him to go right in the the pretext is to, to find a wife from within his kin instead of from the people of the land. But as he's on his way and he stays the night, right? He has that vision of a ladder and the Lord uh, stands above it and tells him, this is in 28 verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. Verse 15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. And we saw that when he returned to the land, he remembered that promise and named it and offered sacrifice. So as the Lord has done for Jacob, which Jacob has recognized. Now the Lord is promising again, as he is compelled to leave the land, I will go with you. I will be with you as your God. I will fulfill my promises to you and I will bring you back, right? You may die there, but your body will come back to this land. Regarding that, at that time, uh, I promised uh, Jacob the same thing that he did to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so we have this, this line of continuity that goes from Abraham to Isaac, and now at least twice repeated in the life of Jacob to, to assure him and also to remind us that this promise given to Abraham is to be traced through Isaac and then Jacob and then Jacob's descendants. What do we have going on in this chapter, right? We have, we have provision for Jacob's family in the famine. We have Jacob about to be reunited with Joseph. But we also have this tie back to the earlier life of Jacob, to the promise to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham, that the Lord is in the midst of bringing what he has promised to pass in the life of Jacob and his descendants. And not in a way that skips over Jacob. Sometimes, I think we, we treat God's promises that way. Like, we know that God keeps his promises. We know that he'll do things for future generations. But sometimes it feels like maybe we individually are excluded or, or passed over in the midst of that. But we see in the life of Jacob here, the Lord's assurance that he individually is included in God's care, and in God's keeping of his promises to his people. What else do you see? It kind of seems like when they are reunited that Jacob's very emotional, you know, now I can die. And, um, and Joseph's pretty business-like, okay, this is what we need to do to get you set up in, in Goshen. Maybe. There, there is the comment at the end of verse 29, right, that, that Joseph comes to Jacob met Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. So I I do think it's a very emotional reunion for him, but it is interesting that the narrator passes over that much more quickly than he does when Joseph presents himself to his brothers. I mean, is he, is it literally let me die now? Or is it, is that a play on let me grow old? Let me, you know, not continue looking for you, or is it, is it actual, is he talking about actually, I can die now? I think he is in a sense, right? I, I don't think he's wishing that he'll fall asleep tonight and not wake up the next morning. I don't think that's what he means. But in visiting with a, an old widow, um, in a conversation with her, this was a few months back, she was deeply concerned about her son. And she, her prayer for some time had been that the Lord would allow her to live long enough that she could see her son turn to the Lord. And I think Joseph's comment here, or Jacob's comment here, is similar to her wishes, right? This widow wants to live long enough to see her son come to the Lord. And it's not that she wants immediately to pass away once that comes to pass. But she wants to live long enough to see that happen. And I think Jacob is recognizing here that the, the one thing he probably thought he would never see, but if he knew it would come, he wanted to live long enough to see it happen, has come to pass. And so now everything that he might wish that he could live to see, he has seen come to fruition. God's, false gods, the different idols. 
and we never get it right. Even today, our idols are Mercedes, Lexus, more land with oil wells on it, and nothing changes. Now, why don't we ever get it right? Because we're men, because we're human. They didn't get it right back in Old Testament times, and we still don't have it right. Because we're men. Mm. I think John Calvin captured that well. It's not a unique insight that he had by any means. He called the hearts of human beings idol factories. And we're, we're really good at making idols. And I think part of why we're like that is, on the one hand, we like to be independent. We like to imagine that we are in some control and we have some authority and we want to do things our way. And that's part of how God made us. God made us to rule the world on his behalf as his image bearers. But God also made us to worship. So I think once we become alienated from God, those two things are at war within us. And the last thing we want to do is submit to the sovereign ruler of the universe and bow the knee to his claims over us. But we know we've got to worship something. Well, you're going to have to anyway. Every knee shall lie, every tongue confess. You're but, going to have to lie. But in the meantime, I think what we do is we try and create idols of our own making so that we can control their claims over us so that we can submit to them in ways that are palatable for us and pretend that they don't make claims in other areas. It allows us to recognize something about ourselves, but also preserve an illusion of control. Could I, could I back up just a bit to um, the comment about death? It, when we read that initially, it reminded me of Luke, um, where Jesus is presented at the temple. And is it Simeon? Yeah, Simeon says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And it just, what you were saying about the thing I've been waiting for, it's here, it's happened. The thing I've been wanting to see happen before I die. Yeah. Like this unresolved business is complete sort of idea. Yeah. Yeah, Simeon's prayer, is that in Luke 2? Luke chapter 2? Did you say beginning at verse 29? This is often called the, the nunc dimittis from, from the opening words, right? Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen thou, thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples. Because Simeon has lived to see the salvation that he had longed for and hoped for. And now he recognizes in the child Jesus that the Lord has kept his promises. He's lived to see that thing he longed for and waited for. Thank you for that. I was thinking of that, but thanks for mentioning it. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, a long time ago, Tommy, before my Uncle Ernie died, and these people were hardcore Tennessee Mountain Pentecostals. Long time ago, he came and he was down here visiting him and Aunt Wilma, and I said, I would like to live to see the Lord return, and he said, not me. And now I'm beginning to see what he meant. As bad as it had gotten, 
I was telling this young man earlier, I don't know your name, I, I know Claude, but <clears throat> the, the quack is and the meth heads have come out to the country where I live. And according to this book right here, it's going to get worse. And so Uncle Arnie, when he told me years ago, he doesn't want to be around, now I know what he meant, kind of. So Simeon just wanted to, to see uh, the birth of the Lord. Okay, cool. Yes, sir. Yeah, Simeon was looking for the deliverance that the Lord had promised, and he recognized in, in Jesus as the child Jesus was presented at the temple, that in this child, the Lord's promise was kept. We have this curious note at the end of Genesis 46, speaking of things that don't make sense to us. Right? So maybe for Jacob, he remembers Joseph's dreams, and he can rest knowing actually that was fulfilled. Yeah. No, I think that's very likely. That, that it's not just this general sense of God's protection and care over him, but especially knowing that Joseph is still alive, having the second vision of the Lord, confirming the Lord's protection and provision and presence with him. And I think you're quite likely right. Genesis 37 mentioned that as much as everybody grumbled about Joseph's dreams, his father kept them in mind. And so these things were all being tied together for his father as he recognizes Joseph's dreams spoke something true that the Lord has now brought to pass. And so he recognizes in that, in not just a general, but a very specific way, that the Lord is keeping his promises and bringing things full circle as far as that goes. 33, it says, mm -hmm. when the Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation, you shall say, you and your servants have been keepers of livestock. Is that almost like him saying, this is what you need to tell him? By saying, you know, you need to say this, like say this, not whatever you really are. Is it, is it almost like he's trying to lead him into something? He's not asking them to lie, right? They are keepers of livestock. But that's important on at least two different fronts, right? And part of what Joseph is trying to arrange, you can see he's already sent them to Goshen. And we're going to find out more about Goshen in the next chapter in particular. Goshen is the best pasturage in all of Egypt. It's the best possible land that people who raise livestock could be on. And it's also at a distance from the city. Right? It's away from the site of the Egyptians because the Egyptians... These are city people, right? And some of them raise grain. And I think about the musical Oklahoma and the, the running argument and tension between the farmers and the ranchers. And nowadays we tend to blend farmers and ranchers together, but their argument was about fences, right? The farmers wanted fences because they wanted to protect their crops. And the ranchers didn't want fences because they had big herds that they needed to move and they needed to move them up to Kansas City or wherever where they were where they would be taken to Chicago and to the slaughterhouses. So there, there was this big running tension. Well, there's some of that in Egyptian society. Animals are dirty. Animals are filthy. Animals trample crops. We don't want them anywhere near us. But Goshen is a place that they can be. So if Joseph is already arranging things so that they're coming to Goshen, 
then Pharaoh may have in mind, hey, this is Joseph's family, right? This is the extended family of the best man in my administration. I want to bring him into the city. I want to give him spacious rooms and the best palaces. And if he does that, they've either got to leave their animals with him or they're going to leave him behind or bring him with him. And if they bring him with him, it's going to be noisy. It's going to be dirty. It's going to smell. And they're going to become a stench in the nostrils of the Egyptians. And what would be a tremendous blessing is going to become a major tension really quickly. And so Joseph is preparing for that ahead of time and making sure they know what to say to Pharaoh and how to make this go smoothly. Pharaoh then to agree and that they should be in the land of Goshen. Yes, sir. And in fact, Joseph's going to take that one step further and arrange that they look after not just their own flocks, but but Pharaoh's flocks and herds as well. Joseph was already in good for Pharaoh anyway. Yes, sir. Okay. There's no question about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was smart enough to take advantage of it, Clyde. Yeah. Well, the Lord guided him to. Yeah, well, yeah. Control. Yeah. All of what is happening. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought that this little kid would someday be the second in command in Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Snot-nosed little 17-year-old who's trying to one-up everybody and thinks he's going to be in charge is in charge. <laughs> and not just of the family, but of the known world. But he doesn't use that to get one over on his brothers. He uses that to provide for his family. Yes, sir. The statement about Shepherdism, abomination to the Egyptians is mainly because of the livestock in conflict with the crops that they were growing, you think? I suspect that's a major piece of it, but I don't think that's all of it. And you think about how people who grow up in town or in the city, they have no idea where their hamburgers come from, right? And they, some of them would be traumatized and terrified and would become vegetarians if they saw a cow slaughtered, right, or saw the process that goes into that. Whereas folks who grow up around that, or they do their own hunting and process their own meat, like, of course that's where it comes from. Well, and you were talking a while ago about cattle farmers about 150 years ago, sheep and goats eat, eat it down to nothing, including the roots. They didn't even bear. And the cattle and the cattlemen and the uh, sheep farmers have been going at it for what, centuries, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's, it's multi-layered, right? It's, part of it is probably the tension between ranchers and farmers. Part of it is the damage the animals may do to the crops. Part of it is, I mean, animals smell. And they probably don't want that, you know, try taking a guy from the city to a feedlot and see what he thinks of that. But the Egyptians were animal too. That's a curious thing. Like they seem to have, like Pharaoh had flocks and herds. That oh, the way yeah. of Joseph keeping the Hebrews separate from the mainline Egyptians, didn't? Yeah. That I think is a major factor. But it also may have been that that the animals the Egyptians kept, they outsourced all the animal keeping. 
when they ate, they separated themselves. The Egyptians wouldn't eat with the Hebrews because they were an abomination to them. So this is, I'm taking this more as Joseph's way of, as you say, pre-planning to keep them kind of separate from the Egyptians to keep some civility there. Yes, sir. I may be wrong. Well, that's part of what we're seeing is that some of the things, some of the reasons are clear to us. Some of them make sense as we start to untangle things a little bit more, but it's almost certainly not single, solitary reasons. There's a whole complex of reasons why to keep them separate, why to have them in this place, why to have them emphasize these things when they speak to Pharaoh. Joseph probably didn't want his Hebrews intermarrying or whatever with the Egyptians because they were pagan and the Hebrews weren't. So it's, that's it's, pretty yeah. good. That's a Deuteronomy, yeah. That's right, good point. Which is an interesting perspective for Joseph to take, given that he had an Egyptian wife. So he may have had some insight into that, given that she's the daughter of a priest. He may have known what he's talking about. Yep. One of the things that this chapter and the surrounding chapters, I think, make so clear to us is we talk about primary and secondary causes. God ordains everything that comes to pass, but he does that through secondary causes. So there are things that the Lord has decreed, that he has promised, that he is at work to cause directly, right? Like the famine that happened that that became the occasion for the migration of peoples. But the Lord also works through Joseph. As the Lord caused Joseph to rise to prominence, then he uses Joseph's wisdom and preparation and position to bring these things about. So that God's bringing all these things to pass for the keeping of his promise, for the blessing of Abraham's descendants doesn't only operate through things the Lord directly does. It also, the Lord's wisdom and planning and decree is so complex and works at such a deep level that Joseph's decisions in terms of what to do with the surplus of grain are part of what the Lord uses to feed Joseph's own family, as well as the rest of the world. So his, his care and his, his providence is so much more extensive than we often consider. That's something that we've pointed out before and we'll point out again, but it's, it's so detailed. And we think about, sometimes we think we want to be in charge. But who among us could keep track of, of this kind of level of detail, right? Sometimes when we're, well, right, even a, even a motor vehicle is such a complex system that very few, not none, but especially modern cars, very few individuals have a complete understanding of the whole system. So that if you try and fix something over here, that may cause something over there to go wrong. Think about how the world operates. And we think sometimes that we want to be in charge. But who could keep track of all the details and how one thing over here affects something over there and so many other things on down the line. 
Praise the Lord that he's in charge, not us. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your watchful care. We thank you for the extent of your power and your love and your control. And that you exercise that care and that providence and that government of the world for the good of your church. And in order to bring about the fulfillment of your promises. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see more and more of the way you care for and provide for and direct and protect us as individuals and in our families, that we might return to you thanks and praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.